We're reading from 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, verses 16 to 39. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of the Lord your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, each one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He ranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, good morning, St. Clair. It's morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I haven't been in the pulpit for a few weeks, which some of you are probably very thankful for. Some of you are like, oh, we missed the accent. So I'm back. Um, I'm one of the pastoral staff, if I haven't met you here at St. Clair, I know there's a lot of new people in our community, and it's always a delight to have you with us. 
Uh, for the past few weeks uh, in the fall series at St. Clair, we've been looking at the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus in Hamilton in 2019? And that's a really important question for us as we do that every day of our lives. But we realize that to do that, we have to look back into our history as the people of God and ask how did people at certain points in the story of God do the very same thing? So David brought a beautiful message last week. If you were here, I'd recommend it on the podcast about what it means to uh, look at the life of David and how David did that with this call to repentance and understanding what sin is. And today we're looking at the life of Elijah. And so this morning, the message is really around the theme of what does a prophetic life look like? Now, maybe some of you are thinking, oh, you chose the bonfire story because in England last week, England had bonfire night. For those of you who know, Guy Fawkes, and you're all asking the question, do English people celebrate with a bonfire the fact someone tried to blow up Parliament? Yes, we do. It's weird, I know, and very strange. Although I did read last week in England, someone with a blog online said, in light of Brexit, maybe we should try it again. Anyway, so I thought that was great. But this morning, we're looking at the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and there's this big showdown that occurs. And it's one of the great showdowns in history. We have Moses and Pharaoh, David and Goliath, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. This is one of the key showdowns that we see in history. But what's really fascinating is to understand this story, we actually have to backtrack a little bit to understand what's actually going on that will help us understand our context in Hamilton and actually the context of the scripture. If you go back a few chapters to 1 Kings 16, we discover who King Ahab is. So it's confrontation between Ahab and Elijah, but we read in 1 Kings 16 that Ahab is a king who's risen to prominence in Israel, but, well, let's read this about him. In 1 Kings 16, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, God of Israel, than did all of the kings before him. So here we have Ahab, a lovely chap, who's obviously not seen as a great king in the eyes of the Lord, and he's destroying the people of God. So the story in context is the people of God are in a very bleak time. When they look around at the world around them, for those who are faithful to God, things don't seem to be going well. Maybe some of us, we often look around the state of the church today, and we weep a little bit, and we bemoan it. Here's one interesting thing that I find from this story, and when you look at church history, at the point where it feels like all hope is gone and the church is on its knees is the time where God seems to work. If you look at all revivals in history, one writer says at the point where it feels the tide is furthest out is the point where the tide starts to come in. And I wonder if we're praying again for a move of God, just like they were at the time of Elijah. 
And also the build-up to Carmel is really interesting. When you read the story of Elijah, what you find is we love this story, 1 Kings 18, fire, power, but the build-up to that is very different. 1 Kings 17, Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, just so you know, this is from the Lord, there's going to be no rain for three years. The land will I follow, there'll actually be a famine in light of that. As you can tell, Ahab is not rather pleased with this news, so goes out to look and try and kill Elijah. And 1 Kings 17 says, after he's told Ahab, Elijah is hidden in the brook of Cherith by the Lord. The next story is Elijah meeting with a widow in Zarephath. And then the next story, it says, is three years later, which actually the scripture in 1 Kings 18, if you read verse 1, says, after a long time, three years, Elijah appears to Ahab. I found this deeply fascinating because in our lives, we often focus on the big and the really important. But you see, for God to use people, the question is, how do we live in the hidden place when no one else sees us? When we're prepared for what God wants to do in our lives, it's always in the unknown, unfamiliar places, the places where no one sees our service, that God really looks to how we're used as his people. Eugene Peterson says this, once we have the entire story of Elijah before us, it became clear that his life in the wilderness and with the widow, his out-of-way life, marginal to everything we assume is important and significant, is foundational to whatever effectiveness he has when the world's eyes are on him. Elijah is as much a prophet in the hidden place as he is on Carmel. He is the same man in obscurity as he is in the spotlight. Prophets live on the margins and bring the margins to the center. What does it look like that every day when no one else sees, we're faithful to what God has called us to do? I think this is a challenge for us because we live in a world and particularly in a church culture that praises this. The goal is to get on the platform. And what we read through the scripture is God's goal is to do his work in us wherever we are. The platform's the least important place for God to work. And what's funny is if you read the life of Elijah, Carmel's the high point, but there's so many hidden places where God is at work. Richard Foster says this, nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to the lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. And I want to say to some of you, because I know you, you have served faithfully following Jesus when no one else has seen you. Each week we have people in our breakfast program, in our nursery, and in your jobs and workplaces, and no one is giving you recognition, but I want to tell you someone sees what you do because he's the same one who hid Elijah in the hidden place in the brook of Cherith. So then this three-year time period 
goes by and Elijah finally arrives again at the door of Ahab in 1 Kings 18 and says to him, rain is on its way. The backstory to this is Elijah goes to his friend Obadiah and says, I need to speak to Ahab. And Obadiah says, this is pretty dangerous because even to be seen with you, you could be killed. Jezebel is out to get you. But Elijah says, I need to confront Ahab again. And this is, Eli- this is Ahab's line to Elijah, which I love. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole of the Old Testament. Elijah meets him and Ahab says this, who are you, troubler of Israel? And Elijah says to him, oh, I've not brought the trouble. You've brought the trouble on yourself. But here's what Elijah is doing. He's using his prophetic calling to confront injustice. See, what prophets do is they speak the things we don't want to hear, but the things we need to hear. And there's a difference between guilt and conviction. I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and this person speaking brought this unbelievable message on power and how Christians have used power for their own agenda, and that we're to give up power on behalf of others. And what's beautiful in the story is someone got up at the end and said, we shouldn't feel guilty about this. And I turned to Dave Arnold and said, oh, the problem is I don't feel guilty, I feel deep conviction. And they're actually two different things. I still knew God loved me, but my use of power and how I gave that for the sake of others is important. And the role of the prophet is a role of loneliness, of being uncomfortable, of being on the margins. It's even one of facing death. What you notice about the prophets is their endings aren't always the greatest. Fast forward to John the Baptist, one of the greatest men Jesus ever said, and somehow he gets beheaded. So we know that the role of the prophet is deeply difficult, but deeply important. Someone at the conference in Belfast was talking about leadership and had this amazing line. They said a young leader came to this older leader and said to him, "Uh, I need to learn about leadership. You need to tell me everything you know. And the older leader said to him, oh, you you don't want to know, which is a great line. And the younger leader said, no, no, tell me everything. I want to plant a church. I want to be great for the kingdom of God. I want to do amazing things in my city. Tell me your best advice. And the older, leader, the older leader paused and said this, what is your pain threshold? And then he went, uh, do you have any other advice? <laughs> and then the man said this, what's your spouse's pain threshold? See, when we follow Jesus, it is amazing and beautiful and it is a life well lived, but it is a life of cost, particularly for the prophetic amongst us. See, when we look at the life of the prophet in the scripture, prophets speak for God. They always challenge God's people out of their uncomfortable state, but they also embody the message. And so when Elijah comes, he confronts Ahab, but he reminds God's people of who they're meant to be. Now, some of you this morning are thinking, I'm so glad that I'm not meant to have the prophetic gift. And some of you here do. I know some of you, and we need to encourage you. Often they are on the margins. We have some amazing people who have a prophetic gift here. But here's the annoying thing as I was reading through the story. Some of us may not be prophets individually, but the church is always meant to be a prophetic people. 
The people of God are always meant to say, that is not how God sees the world. And particularly, that is not how God sees people. We always should be at the front lines of injustice. The church always uses its power and gives it away. Here's the annoying thing. The one we follow is the lamb who was slain so he could give his life for others. So Elijah shows up, and we have this beautiful story on Mount Carmel. What I love about this story is interaction. Basically, Ahab and Elijah have this debate, and then Elijah says, right, get all of the people of God and all the prophets of Baal, and we'll show up on Mount Carmel for this showdown. So they go for the showdown, everyone arrives, and Elijah says this, how long will you waver between two opinions? Is God God or is Baal God? You must make your choice. Ooh, that hit deeply to me. Yeah, Matt, how long are you going to just kind of kind of follow Jesus and not really follow Jesus? Are you actually going to make a decision about this? And it's really interesting. The scripture says everyone just fell silent. No one said anything. So Elijah did what all good prophets do. He said, right, why don't you get a sacrifice? We'll build an altar, place the bull on it. You ask Baal for fire to fall from heaven to consume the altar, and I'll do the same thing. So the prophets of Baal build this altar. If you ever think the the scripture is not comical, please reread this story. It is amazing. So build this altar. They start to pray. It says they dance around. It's very energetic, and nothing happens. Just so we know, Baal worship is symbolized by ecstasy, and also experience. The prophets of Baal, their tagline for their worship was, what do we get out of it? I mean, that doesn't sound like anything would be relevant to the church today. But they say, what is our benefit from this time of worship? So they're singing and dancing, and Elijah says this, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's gone on holiday which is the total playground mocking thing, don't you think? Actually, earlier on, it was really funny. He said, why don't you start with your altar first because there's more of you than there are of me. Ooh, we'll see how this is going to go. So it's really playground, recess style. So then they decide to sing even louder, shout even louder. They get to the point where they cut themselves for Baal to come and nothing happens. And I can imagine Elijah going, Okay, thank you. Now with the real deal. So he builds this altar, gets stones to represent the tribes of Israel. And here's the best bit of the story. He says, I'm going to mock you a little bit. I'll find some water. Where he found water in a drought and a famine. Have you ever thought about that? No idea. Anyway, he gets this water. I have no idea. Almost like he's been saving it, like, oh, three years time. This is going to be good. So places it over the altar And then here's the thing. They have been screaming ecstasy, dancing around, going crazy. And basically God says this. Elijah says this. God, in a simple prayer, we've forgotten our way. Turn our hearts back to you. Would you send your fire? And the fire falls from heaven and consumes the altar. So what does this mean for us in Hamilton today? Other than it's a great story that we love. There's a couple of things that came to mind for our community. One was the phrase, how long will you waver between two opinions? And about you, sometimes in your life, there's a season of intentionality and a place where we say, I've been kind of doing the Jesus thing, but doing this other thing as well. And there's a point, I think, where Jesus shows up at our doorstep and says, 
come and follow me. Go all in with the way of following Jesus. You've been kind of hedging your bets. You've been thinking, oh, I'm not sure. But Jesus says, would today you choose to follow me? And maybe some of us feel like that. As we think about that question, maybe for some of us, what I love about the altar in the scripture is the altar is always a place of consecration for God's people. And maybe for some of you, there's this deep sense that God wants to do something in this community and in this city, and there will be an intentionality that takes place. And the place of consecration may be to repent and turn back to God. See, repentance isn't we should feel terrible about ourselves. In the Hebrew, repentance is coming back home. And so maybe God is calling you to himself and saying, for too long you've been wavering. Would you consecrate yourself to me so I can come and work? Maybe for some of you, it's this idea of injustice, of being a prophet who would speak truth to power. And I want to say that is involved in every day of our lives. That's not just the people who are the big prophets who need to stand at the front of City Hall and start calling down injustice, although I think Christians should be at the front line. Every single day, where are we saying, how do I use my power and leverage it for those who have no power? And the last one, and it's interesting, this ties really deeply into our prayer time before the service. A couple of people prayed this without knowing the message. I had this image this week as I was praying for our community that for some of us, we're a little bit like the altar. And what I mean by that is the story's fascinating because Elijah preps the altar, but without the fire, nothing happens. And maybe for some of us, we're just a longing for the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh with his presence. Maybe we feel a bit dry. Someone in the prayer time was praying about bones that just feel dry and tired. And this morning, maybe God wants to fill us afresh with his fire so that we can do what he's called us to do as we live into the world. When you know your shame has gone, there's no better thing to do than to sing. That's why we sing. Our shame has actually been lifted. And our identity is now we're children of God who are beloved to him. And that changes everything. We normally close with a benediction, but I'm just going to invite Amy Sawatsky. If you just want to come, that would be delightful. Um, As a community, we're committed to prayer. Uh, We talked today about these prophetic voice that fights for injustice. We're also committed to mission, to sending people out into the mission of Jesus. And so, uh, do you want to join me, Amy? Amy is a nurse here in Hamilton, and for the next season of her life, is gonna, how long are you going to be away for? A few months. So Amy's going away for six weeks, and then at a time, three weeks uh, to nurse in a northern community. And so one of the things we're passionate about, there's a few other people who do this. I know Jenna and Ed in our community do this. We fully want to support people to live the way of Jesus in their work place. Uh, The majority of people in this community are not pastors like myself. You're out there daily living mission where you are. And so Amy's heading away and she asked if we could pray for her. So I'm going to pray for this morning, but also we're praying for all of you who will step out of these doors this morning and step back into your place of work because that is your mission field. So why don't you join me as we pray for Amy this morning to close our time. Father, thank you so much for Amy her passion to serve you and to follow you, uh, to live into mission every single day. 
Lord, as she heads away uh, from her faith community, her family, God, would you go with her? Jesus, your promise in Matthew says you're with us to the end of the age. God, as she goes, would she find a community of people who could rally around her, support her, and encourage her? Jesus, thank you that as the people of God, we are the sent ones. And so as Amy is sent toward you, reminder of a community who love her and care about her, fill her with your spirit and return her to us so we can celebrate what you're doing in her life. In Jesus' name, amen.